thanks everybody for uh, listening in on another segment of the Grassy Knoll. This is Viz, and we have with us today, um, from that wonderland known as Hawaii, uh, Peter Goodgame. The uh, website is redmoonrising.com, and um, uh, uh, Peter, uh, without further ado, uh, we thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Viz. Thanks for the invitation. Um, you've got some kind of website, redmoonrising.com. I tell you what, that's, I mean, it, it's, it, it's substantive, but I tell you, it, it looks great. That is a, <laughs> that's some kind of website. Well, I, I know. I do, uh, I cover a lot of different topics. Oh, boy, I tell you, the whole thing's laid out just really well, so good for you. Uh, well, thanks. It's, uh, it's, it's all me, but, uh, it's been, it's been the same for, for a long time, so I'm thinking it's in need of an upgrade, but we'll, we'll We'll see about that. Thanks right. for the compliment. Well, it's well-deserved, so no problem. Um, <clears throat> now, um, people have heard you, I, I guess, uh, most recently and most extensively on peering into darkness. Um, for those of us, as myself, who are not that familiar, fil- familiar with you, will you tell us what's at the crux of the work that you do, the research you do? Well, I... Most of my work is uh, related to, I would say, Bible prophecy, and I come from a Christian perspective. But I try and uh, I try and have my own unique perspective. I, I try to think outside of the box. And uh, uh, the work that uh, I'm most excited about right now is this series called the Giza Discovery. And I completed this. It's an online series. I completed it back in February, and the next task is to turn it into a book. But, uh, uh, let's see, the, the Gita discovery really took off for me when I began looking at some of the allegations uh, put out by skeptics of Christianity that say that the Jesus story is a myth based on pre-existent pagan themes of dying and rising gods. Uh, uh-huh. So, are you familiar with the book, The Christ Conspiracy, The Greatest Story Ever Sold? Uh, no, I'm not, but um, uh, there's something I want to, I'll, I'll mention later on, but I'm glad you said that, so go ahead and continue. Well, th- this is a very, uh, a very popular book found in almost all New Age bookstores, but uh, that's the essential uh, thesis, that uh, Christianity was, was set up by leaders of the pagan mystery cults to create a new religion mm-hmm. to continue to uh, to continue the domination of Rome. All right. So, let, let me ask you this now, and I'm, I'll get out of here. Yeah. But it's something that I did also. I'm glad you said that. Um, and I, I, um, I did exchange emails with Derek. Yeah. And, you know, I said to him, I'm going, you know, and this was probably something aside. I don't know how it happened, Peter. But, my, all right, and I'm just going to throw this out. In our, in our little email discussion, I said, you know, if Satan came down to the earth and knew exactly what was going to happen as much as he's allowed to know, why wouldn't he lay in all these supposed legends, so to speak, or, I mean, he's not calling them legends, he's calling them the truth. Right. But all these, like, you know, uh, immaculate conceptions like Nimrod and all these trinities, so that when finally Christ comes on the earth, everybody nowadays can point and say, well, look, we've seen these things all through time. Do you know where I'm going? Do you understand what I'm saying with that? Yes, I do. All right, so just pick that up and roll with it, please. Right, well, I think uh, you're kind of approaching it at face value kind of uh, from the same... Uh, approach that Justin Martyr took, uh, essentially saying that uh, you know that, G- that Satan knew in advance, and then he planned all of this to kind of spread it uh, when it happened in advance. I'm not sure if I if I follow that view. What, okay. what I what I've come to understand is that uh, our Creator God has a very uh, fine appreciation for irony. Okay, <laughs> it's uh, it, it runs through so many things, uh, but I think. I think that uh, I don't think it was so much of uh, of, of Satan trying to uh, do religions out in advance. Okay. In advance. Uh, I, I think that uh, I think that the way that the Messiah came kind of uh, is like a mirror opposite of what happened leading up to uh, just. Uh, the appearance of Jesus the Messiah was a very revolutionary thing. It was essentially overthrowing the old spiritual order that had domination over the entire earth. And this gets back to uh, the work of Mike Heiser, uh, who has done a lot of good research into comparing Old Testament writings with 
uh, neighboring cultures, especially uh, the, the Phoenicians and the Canaanites, mm-hmm. from the, the Ugaritic texts, because this language was a language the, the most closely related to Hebrew in the ancient world. But uh, what Heiser's focus is on a concept referred to as the divine council. Okay, mm-hmm. it's saying that God uh, God controls the universe through His divine family. Okay, His sons, the sons of God, which we refer to as angels nowadays. They're a group of advanced beings that are essentially the family of God, and God works through them. Now, now, way back uh, uh, before the flood there was a group of these beings that rebelled. This is what we see in the Genesis 6 account when the, the, the sons of God came down and took daughters of men. Uh, they, they bore the Nephilim, who were a group of, uh, another group of advanced, semi, semi-divine, I guess, beings, you could say, that, uh, that uh, really abused their power and uh, created a lot of wickedness on the earth. Well, the flood came, and... Uh, and wiped all that out. That whole civilization ended. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, uh, we returned to uh, what kind of situation happened after the flood. Uh, the, 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 one of the central ideas behind the, the whole divine council thing is that uh, after the flood, beginning at the Tower of Babel incident, uh, you have the appearance of this figure named Nimrod in the Bible. Mm-hmm. This is who I think it, it all points back to. This is very, this is very important. Nimrod is the first uh, rebel, human rebel, mm-hmm. to go against the will of God after the flood. And he's a lot of in, in Genesis chapter ten. There's uh, there's a, a several verses describing this this figure. Uh, but the end result was that Nimrod led a rebellion against man against God. Mm-hmm. So God uh, effectively. Uh, subjected mankind to another judgment, another punishment. This judgment was that the nations of the world would be divided up and handed over to this rebellious faction of, of God's own sons, of these fallen angels. So that's the point from where we can take off. This is uh, the fallen angels are essentially given control over the entire world. Now, I approach this whole idea... Uh, Looking at it through the eyes of the Sumerians and through the Egyptians and some of this through through the eyes of the surrounding cultures, because the nation of Israel wasn't really created until the calling out of Abraham, which was like a thousand years after this uh, the Tower of Babel. So you have this whole thousand year period where the only story that we can get about what happened is from the pagan side of things. Okay. And and this is what. What I found is that when we look at the Sumerian texts, now the Sumerians were really the very first advanced civilization. They were the first to invent writing, first to invent, you know, a, a form of being able to write down history and uh, mankind's understanding of, of events mm-hmm. in a narrative form that's understandable that can be passed down. So I think it's very important to look at what the Sumerians had to say, especially about religion. And we find so many parallels between the Sumerian accounts and the book of Genesis. It's just that we have to understand that the, these, these parallel accounts have two different perspectives. And what I've done in my Giza Discovery series is I have, I really believe I have identified where the creator, with the role that cre- the creator plays in the Sumerian accounts and, and the role that this being that we know today as Satan, mm-hmm. what role he had. And in the Sumerian pantheon, the Sumerian religion, there is essentially a trinity at the very head, okay? The father of the gods, who is really far removed and inactive, is, is referred to as Anu. And he has two, two sons who are brothers, Enki and Enlil. It seems that Enlil plays an active role in controlling the world, and he's referred to as the, the high god. For, as far as mankind is concerned, he's the high god that we have to deal with. On the other hand, Enki is is kind of viewed as mankind's benefactor. He's the source of wisdom. He's the source of knowledge. He's the one who really he's given credit for creating us, and he's given credit for, for protecting us. So Enki is portrayed as the good guy. Now, uh, this ties in with uh, the, the Genesis accounts. When we, when we look at some of the early events in, uh, in the book of Genesis, specifically the creation of the first city, which was which was the credited to Cain, the descendants of Cain and his descendants, founded the first civilization in the Mesopotamian River Valley. Okay? Mm-hmm. 
uh, and it focuses specifically on this town, the city, known as Eridu. And this city, according to the Sumerian, uh, according to the uh, Sumerian king list, which is another major, very important document, this this city was the first city ever built, and this was the, the city where kingship descended from heaven. Now, this city was the cult headquarters of the god Enki, and I believe that uh, as the the Hebrew uh, apocryphal uh, writings say, Books, yeah. mm-hmm. the line of Cain was really heavily influenced by Satan. Mm-hmm. Now, if we can we can just look at this from this perspective, we kind of see how uh, we can we can see how the Sumerian texts and the Sumerian perspective is really Enki's perspective. So, from the very beginning, where kingship came from. Uh, it focuses on the city of Eridu. Now, Eridu is very important because I believe that is the location of the, the historical location of the Tower of Babel. Not Babylon from years later mm-hmm. that was founded like a thousand years later. But at the, at the very beginning, this is where, after the flood, uh, we have three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? Mm-hmm. Nimrod is, is a grandson of, of Ham. And again, we find parallels. We can find these these figures when we examine the Sumerian text and compare them with the book of Genesis. So, essentially, Nimrod is this figure referred in the Sumerian text as Enmerkar. There are at least four or five major narratives, Sumerian epics, in which this figure appears. And in it, we can find the stories of his conquests and the story of his uh, trying to build temples to the pagan gods and... We also find his close affiliation with this god Enki. And we see that uh, uh, hints that perhaps he came from from Africa, that being the son of Cush, that's, that would be his point of origin. Right. Um, and uh, and it, it all ties together. Now, specifically, the, the meaning of the, of the name Enmerkar. Uh, Enmer would translate to three consonants NMR. Kar, with the suffix, means hunter in Sumerian. Mm-hmm. So this, from the Sumerian account, he was Enmer the hunter. Uh, the Genesis account refers to him as Nimrod the hunter. That's right, that's right. And MRD the hunter. So the, the parallels are there. So Now, from that point, we after the, the breakup, the, the division of the nations, this is, this is what it boiled down to. When, when Nimrod led mankind in rebellion against God, against the Creator, and built that tower, God had to make a decision, and we see this in Genesis chapter 11, where God calls the, convenes the council, the heavenly divine council, and he's talking to the, the angelic beings that are beside him, and he's saying that this can't go on, we have to do something. But the end result is that Nimrod's uh, what is essentially a, a global empire, mm-hmm. or at least in the, in the in this area, you know, the, right, the a semblance of such. Yep. Mm-hmm. For the Nile Valley, the Mesopotamia, mm-hmm. and even into India, these are three major, you know, uh, early civilizations, and then Nimrod controlled it all. Essentially, this had to be broken up, and and uh, the the sons of God, these fallen angels, they agreed to it because part of the deal was that God would didn't get out of the way. The Creator would get out of the way, the nations would be divided up, handed over to the authority of these beings, and they could rule as they wished. So, now, a lot of this, there's a lot of confirmation about this whole idea when we look at Egyptian accounts, specifically of the god Osiris. And what happens, what happened to Nimrod himself is he became deified as kind of... Uh, an underworld deity. He became viewed as a god. After, after, the, after the true god stepped out of the way, Satan was able to manipulate a human understanding of, of, of religion, of spirituality. So he set up... I, I think that human beings retained a, an understanding of the Creator, but at the same time, they were led... To, into deception to glorify Satan, Enki, whatever whatever name he's known as, and and at the same time they were led to glorify this uh, this figure, this historical figure who died in order to pave the way for the d- division of the nations. So in a sense, Nimrod was a sacrifice made on behalf, a human sacrifice made on behalf of the gods. 
this relate. This is kind of again the mirror opposite of what Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, right, was. Exactly. Mm-hmm. He was the, he was a, he was a human sacrifice, or he was a, a divine sacrifice on behalf of human beings. Right. So I see these parallels of, of mirror opposites all throughout this whole this whole study. But uh, now, what I've been looking at uh, recently is well, let's turn to the the Book of Revelation and the primary apocalyptic symbol of evil, the personification of evil in the book of Revelation is this seven-headed dragon. Dragon, In Revelation chapter 12, he appears, he's referred to as Satan. Satan, the dragon with seven heads. Then later on in chapter 13, these seven heads appear on the beast himself. And then in Revelation chapter 17, these, these heads are explained as being seven kings. And, uh, what I've done is, uh, see, most modern prophecy scholars interpret the kings, or these heads, as being kingdoms. I don't think they're kingdoms. I think I stick with exactly what the Bible says. They are kings. They are individuals. And the text explains that of these seven, when the book of Revelation was written, five have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. And then the Antichrist himself would be an eighth. He would be one of the seven. He would be, you know, one of these who had previously existed, He's presently in the in the abyss, but he will come out of the abyss. Mm-hmm. So, what to to make a long story short, and people can please, I, I'm going over this quickly. People can sure. check out my Giza Discovery series online and and look at this as I lay it out step by step. But uh, well, let me ask you one thing. You said that they are truly kings, but over what do they rule? I well, I I name who I think these kings are. They they ruled over. Uh, they, they ruled over their own kingdoms in the past. Okay. Definitely. So in a sense, uh, they could be re- viewed as kingdoms as well, but it's important to, to recognize the individual aspect. Okay. Because I think when it talks about the eighth, the Antichrist, who once was, now is not, and yet shall be, who will come up out of the abyss, mm-hmm. we're not talking about a revived Roman Empire, for instance, mm-hmm. which is how so many teach it. We're talking about a revived being, a revived human being who is presently in hell. Okay. And in other words, I see I see another uh, parallel. Just like Jesus, the true Messiah, will make a second coming to the earth. So shall. From his point of origin in heaven, mm-hmm. I see that the Antichrist will make a second coming to the earth from his point of origin in hell. Okay. So... Uh, just to name, let me quickly name these. Uh, when we look at a seven-headed uh, dragon, the the first king has to be Nimrod, because this is the king that started it all mm-hmm. off. And I believe that, in a sense, the Antichrist will be the first and the last. In other words, he is the first king, and he is also the eighth, who is one of the seven. So Nimrod, Nimrod is the Antichrist. He was the one who started it, and he will be the one who finishes it. And with this understanding, when this when this whole mandate, divine mandate, was given, when the, with the breakup of Nimrod's empire, I, I, you know, Satan kind of agreed to this deal, and he was told that that his his son Nimrod would rise again. Mm-hmm. So I think this, the the death of Nimrod and his deification over the years in all his different forms and we also have to remember this in the context of the creation of the many different languages right mm-hmm. because that is what most people uh, uh, think about when they talk about the Tower of Babel a bit not so much the spiritual division but the creation of many different languages so when these all these different language, all these different nations were created they were all given a different language and they were all given a different uh, fallen angel to rule over them to be their spiritual, you know, authority. Uh, so we have Nimrod uh, seen and understood in many different names. Uh, in, in Mesopotamia, for instance, he was uh, one of his first deifications was as the god Ninurta, and also Ningirsu. In Egypt, it was Osiris. Okay. Uh, the Minoan cultures knew him as Zagreus. Zagreus is very interesting because that name also means great hunter. Mm-hmm. And uh, Zagreus was an early version of the god Dionysus, and the stories of Dionysus and Osiris, like the Greek historians were very keen to point out, they are one and the same. Osiris is Dionysus. Mm -hmm. They are very much the same. And then this, of course, ties in with uh, the work of 
a Christian skeptic, Tom Harper, in his book, The Pagan Christ. Throughout his book, he compares the life of Christ as portrayed in the Gospels with these mythical accounts of this figure he refers to as Dionysus Osiris. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think Osiris and Dionysus were actually real real people or real gods? or uh, Were they real uh, spirit beings that... Yeah, better way to put it. Mm-hmm. ...affect... Uh, Humanity, that's hard to say. I do believe that they were modeled after the historical Nimrod. Okay. Uh, I, I do believe that. I think that uh, that Osiris, we see, uh, I call my series the Giza Discovery Series, because I think that Giza, the whole Giza necropolis, was built as a monument to Osiris. And as Robert Baval and his work has shown, the three pyramids of Giza are laid out according to the constellation Orion. And, the, and mm-hmm. Orion is the great hunter in the sky. When you look at those three pyramids in a row, and you looked up at the three belt stars of Orion, it's a mirror image. I'm not going to send you down a road you don't want to go. And and also, is that layout in the valley uh, representative of what they thought the Stargate was in the skies? Oh, that's that's another deep question. Okay, we won't do it. We won't do it. That's okay. (laughs) I'm not so much into Stargates. Uh, Tom Horn and uh, Beth Vey are two... uh, Two good sources. If people are interested in stargates, okay. Uh, as far as how these these advanced beings can uh, <laughs> interact with with human reality, I'm not sure that it demands uh, a stargate. Yes. But it might it might be because uh, that's the thing. Uh, the very name Babylon comes from the Akkadian word Babylu, which means the gate of the gods. So Akkadian. Yeah, Akkadian. Yes. It's really it's, uh, Sumerian. No, the Sumerian language was like the first written language. The second written language was Akkadian, and that's really northern, kind of northern Mesopotamian. Oh. But it was written in cuneiform. It's it's a Semitic language, uh, somewhat related to Sumerian, but kind of a different branch. All right, before we go any further, let's let's do, uh, just do some business. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, okay. um, let's talk about the website and what people can find there and, 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 and what you're all about and the work that you've done. Well, yes, the website, redmanrising.com. I have written a book called Red Moon Rising, The Rapture and the Timeline of the Apocalypse. That's available at Amazon.com. Okay. Uh, and this, what I'm doing right now in the Giza Discovery, kind of uh, a lot of my ideas tie in with my, my understanding of Bible prophecy as put forward in my book. So it, it all ties together. I have a number of new ideas, but they're all, they're, they're all, they all support each other. Also, you you posted a lot of articles, and there's a real uh, panoply of uh, of information that people can go ahead and take yeah, a look I, at. I, I get into politics. I get into uh, <laughs> Islamic fundamentalism and the roots of the roots of Islamic terror. Uh, I, I do a lot of studies on uh, New Age expectations, how mm-hmm. they how they reflect, you know, Bible prophecy. There, there's there's quite a lot there. Yes. Yeah, you got a lot of hot potato items on that one. <laughs> Yes. And that's redmoonrising.com again. And um, uh, the, the books that you've written that are available are? Just that one book for Just now. the one for now. Red Moon Rising, yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, then pick it up from where we left off, if you will. Okay. Well, let's let's get back to this focus on, on the seven-headed dragon. Okay. Uh, that's really the, in, in the Bible, that is portrayed. That's the image that uh, human beings understand to be, or, or Christians understand as, you know, that's the ultimate symbol of evil, okay? That's, that's the ultimate enemy of God and of man. What's interesting is when we look at uh, the ancient Sumerian texts, because the seven-headed dragon appears. It appears in the first appearance, dates back to about 2600 B.C. There's an image of, it, it's a, a clay, uh, excuse me, uh, a shell inlay uh, artifact, I guess. It, it's depicting a seven-headed dragon or seven-headed snake, mm-hmm. and there's this god who's, who's uh, understood to be either Ninurta or Ningirsu, which are essentially the same, cutting off one of its heads. So that's the earliest we have uh, in, in Sumerian, in the Sumerian culture of a seven-headed dragon. Then we go to the Ugaritic texts, and we find that this seven-headed dragon is referred to as Lotan, okay? And in their in their myths, the god Baal is the slayer of that beast. Mm. But then when we go to the to the Old Testament, the writings of the Hebrews, this uh, many-headed figure is referred to as Leviathan. Okay, there are texts where referred to, it, it, it is described as having many heads. 
But then in Isaiah chapter 27, the death of Leviathan isn't something put in the past. In other words, past tense. Right. It's referred to in an apocalyptic context. So what I think is that the pagan cultures were deceived into believing that this great enemy of God and man had been defeated when it had not. Mm-hmm. And the Hebrews put it back in its proper context, saying that this this great enemy is still around, and it will not be ultimately uh, uh, neutralized until the day of the Lord, which is the context in which in which it says that God will will punish this the, the fleeing serpent Leviathan. All right, one uh, quick question: Leviathan is that necessarily um, um, connotated with being um, or coming out of uh, the waters? Uh, it is. It okay. is. It's, very, it's very closely associated with the sea. Okay. And the interesting thing is the god Enki was a god of the sea and the god of the abyss. Enki, I think, is the Sumerian uh, portrayal of Satan. Water plays a very big part, doesn't it, as far as an imagery all throughout uh, Scripture? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. okay. Mm-hmm. And, it, well, when we get to, to uh, Greek mythology, what I see is kind of like uh, the, the personality of, of Satan is kind of split up into three different parts. When you have the three brothers at the head of the pantheon, you have Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. And Zeus is really the, the ruling aspect. Poseidon is the water aspect, mm-hmm. and Hades is the underworld aspect. So, okay, so you kind of have above, below, and, and water. Yes, yes. Which, which is the lifeblood of the earth, obviously. Yes. Okay. Now, now getting back to what happened to Nimrod, uh, the god Osiris is really the first, the first form, the first deified form of Nimrod, I believe. And Osiris in the Egyptian uh, religion, he was the god of the underworld. He is the one you would have to face after living your life. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that in the Egyptian uh, myths, in their in their history, Osiris is one, the very first one to undergo the process of mummification. So I I really think that was done for a purpose. I think I think the Egyptians knew that uh, this body would be used again. Oh. Okay. Now going back to the the Mesopotamians. Uh, Let's, let's turn to uh, Ninurta, Ninurta, this god. Uh, what happens in, in this area is that the, the human beings who lived there retained an understanding of the creator. But the creator was kind of edged out of the story, and Enki is portrayed positively, and Enlil, who corresponds in so many ways with Jehovah, is kind of edged out of the story. Then uh, it's done through Ninurta himself, through this god. So uh, what we have is a series of myths talking about how Ninurta receives his wisdom from Enki, talking about how, uh, there's another story, talking about how there's these great threats, there's these monsters, this Anzu bird who is threatening Enlil, who stole the tablets of destiny. Ninurta has to run to his to Enlil's rescue, defeat the bird, restore the tablets of destiny. And then there's, uh, uh, there's another story about how how Ninurta returns triumphantly to the city of Nippur, which was Enlil's city, and Enlil is kind of uh, kind of quakes in fear at the appearance of of this god. So Enlil is kind of portrayed as uh, a god who is really not that powerful, who's really not that wise, and uh, we find this uh, all throughout the text, where where Enki is glorified, Enlil is slandered. And Ninurta is the god, the new god, the next generation who takes over the pantheon. All right, let me hold you right there if I could, Peter. Yes. Also, want to tell everybody listening to the Grand Scene All, and we have with us Peter Goodgame. The website is redmoonrising.com. That's www.redmoonrising.com. Um, I want to ask you one thing and then just jump back in again because I'm doing a series on the side, which you, you know, may or may not know about. You talked about the Anzu bird. Yes. Um, what, was that, what were the properties or the. Um, you know, of that particular, uh, uh, you know, demigod or entity? Well, it was, uh, there are a number of these threats to, to order, who, which appeared in, in the Mesopotamian myths, and the, the Anzu bird was one of them. It was, uh, I think it was brought in originally by Enlil as to guard, to be a protector of, okay. of the Tablets of Destinies, and uh, the Anzu bird saw weakness, took the tablets, and flew off to, to the mountains. And uh, Enlil was, really didn't have 
any idea what to do. He was helpless, didn't know who to call. And then again, steps up uh, Enki as kind of the, the wise god who stands on the side, who knows everything, who can solve every problem. Enki steps up and says, let's call Ninurta. And, so okay. Ninurta, and, then, and then at first Ninurta comes on the scene, does battle, fails, and then he has to go to Enki. Enki gives him words of advice and gives him a strategy about how to how to defeat the Anzu bird. And so uh, with Enki's help again, the Nurta returns to the battle and succeeds. All right. Um, so. This is just, a, again, something that might, you know, take much more to go after, um, but I have to throw it out there just because I want to, you know, I'm just trying to connect things in my own mind. Yes. Anzu and the Garuda, any connection there? The Garuda, that sounds familiar, but I can't remember. Okay. No problem there. Um, I'm going to do more research on that. We're doing something with someone, um, uh, Andrew Colvin, actually, with the Mothman Prophecies, um, who is dealing with uh, the Mothman being, a, a, I, I guess, its origins being in the Garuda. I see. You know, I mean, so I mean, the Phoenix, the Garuda, the Anzu. You know what I mean? There's always something oh, there. I together. Yeah. So that that's why I asked you that. So right now, let me, let me give me. Oh, it's not in here. Nah, I don't know. Stay. I saw. It, I saw it, I've seen it mentioned before. I'm trying to look at my dictionary of gods, demons, and symbols of ancient Mesopotamia. Well, if you want some time, yeah. If you want some time, look it up. Not in here. No, I've already. Looked All right. It up no problem. Here. No problem. But you gave me enough of a, you know, uh, an answer that you know it, it bears looking I, into. I'm sure there's some links there. Okay. Sure thank there you. Are. Yes. All right. Forge ahead there. It's a good well, game. Well, <laughs> uh, when we look at the history of Mesopotamia, uh, the Sumerian culture continued, you know, from from the flood after the time of Nimrod all the way up until uh, really it ended uh, finally and completely with the conquest of Hammurabi. We're talking uh, uh-huh. around about the 18th uh-huh. century B.C. And with the, con- with the conquest of Hammurabi, he institutes really a new religious system under new religious understanding and even a new understanding of creation. And what the end result is that the old gods are overthrown and a new god, the next generation, takes over. And the, the primary deity that uh, Hammurabi worshipped was this god Marduk. And Marduk has all the characteristics of Ninurta. So what... What essentially happens is that uh, yeah, the older generation is thrown out, the new generation takes over. And it's, it's, an, it's like it's an inevitable process mm-hmm. because of just the way that Enlil had been described and demeaned down through the centuries. Uh, and Marduk, it's interesting that uh, Ninurta at the beginning was referred to as the son of Enlil. In some texts he's referred to as the son of Enki. But he's primarily referred to as the son of Enlil. Oh, okay. But when we get to Marduk, he is referred to uh, very clearly and and only as the son of Enki. So it's like it's like Satan's son finally takes over the pantheon, mm-hmm. and and all worship goes to him. Uh, the, it's interesting though that the violence that is really uh, characterizes this whole takeover. Uh, it, it wasn't. It wasn't a pretty affair. Let, let me. Uh, I'm trying to get a few quotes here. Uh, just the way it's described. Sure. Uh, it's like uh, there. There are texts, for instance, in the Babylonian rituals that uh, that took place yearly, uh, glorifying Marduk. It talks about how Marduk uh, roasted the sons of Anu and Enlil in the fire. It talks about uh, poking the eyes out of Enlil. It it, it gets very violent, very graphic. Oh, it wasn't yeah. a pretty affair. And I think that is how that is how the Creator God was kind of, kind of uh, finally written out of the story completely. What do you mean, because of the violence? And the depths of it? Just, just yeah, just the, the violence showed how important this was. Mm-hmm. And how how it was very important for the pagan world to for the for the spirit beings behind, you know, the pagan religious system. How important it was for them to to belittle the the understanding of God in the minds of humanity. So, uh, well, I mean, the, the reason I'm saying it is because I remember reading uh, Ulysses the Odyssey, and um, some of the battle scenes are rather graphic as well. You know, and night oh, fell yeah. upon his eyes, and <laughs> oh yeah, it was oh, like yeah. okay. Well, you know. <laughs> well the, just the, you know, the pagan world was very bloody, very violent world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Now. Uh, Going back to this theme of of uh, the the seven headed dragon. Now the, the, the seven headed dragon is the symbol 
Okay, it's, it's a symbol. It's not a it's not a reality. There's not really a seven-headed dragon out there. Now, but the seven heads are interpreted as, as seven individuals. That's what I believe they are. There are seven kings, just like the Bible says. Now, in addition to having the symbol appear in the ancient uh, Sumerian text, there are also many references to to seven individuals, to seven beings. And uh, it's interesting because in some traditions they're portrayed as positive and some they're portrayed as negative. I think the pagan world uh, retained uh, an expectation and understanding of of seven who would come in the future. If Nimrod wasn't the first, that means there would be seven to follow after, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are several several references. Let's start with uh, uh, in some of the earliest Sumerian texts. There are there's reference to the seven sages. Okay, according okay. to these Sumerian accounts, these seven sages first appeared out of the Persian Gulf. They were connected with the city of Eridu once again. And these seven sages were uh, essentially servants of Enki, who came up out of the of the waters, and they and they brought to mankind all the arts and civ- of civilization, the sciences, all the technology that mankind needed. So these were the advanced beings that that helped to create civilization. Now, in in some of the stories, these seven sages for one reason or another, they anger Enki, and, they're, and then they're locked up in the abyss. But down through the ages in, in, in Sumerian and Babylonian uh, beliefs, supposedly some of their magicians, some of their priests, were able to make contact with these beings in times of trouble to, to provide solutions for whatever, was, for, for whatever mm-hmm. problem was, was the community faced. But uh, we find... The seven sages, and then we find references to a group of seven that are referred to as the Sebitu, okay? Uh, Seb is, you know, a root that refers to seven. Seven, right? Mm. Uh, yes. But uh, they are, there are seven demons, and there are also seven gods. Uh, the, the seven demons are the, the negative connotation. Uh, they're, they're referred to as the offspring of... Of, of heaven and earth, but they assist, they refer to as assistance of this this god, the Sumerian god Nergal, who I think is another uh, deification, another representation of Nimrod. Mm-hmm. Now, Nergal was associated with the city of uh, Kutha in, I think it was uh, central uh, Mesopotamia, and it was, a, it was a city of the underworld, and Nergal was a god of the underworld. Now, there's a very interesting Sumerian uh, uh, narrative of a story of, it's called the story of Era and Isham. Era is another name for Nergal. Uh, also, another name for Nergal is, uh, is Melkart, and which the Greeks knew as Heracles. Uh-huh. So these all tie together. In, in my Giza Discovery series, I look at three Phoenician deities, uh, Adonis, Eshmon, and Heracles, or Melkart. And they're, they're essentially, they're just three names for the very same god, three different names for the very same god. Mm-hmm. And they all connect with Osiris. Hmm. So, again, this is simply the pagan deification of the original dying and rising god. Mm-hmm. Who was who? All tra- they all trace back to Nimrod. Now Nergal was another one who was uh, who's in the circle, and uh, it's interesting. It's, it's simply interesting because there's this reference to these seven warrior demons or warrior gods who are associated with him, and also associated with the abyss. Uh, now we find another reference to uh, to seven. Uh, Let's see here. That's Nergal. Seven demons really—they have a negative uh, connotation. Uh, there are also seven gods, also referred to as the Sebatu, who have a positive connotation. So, what I think is that uh, uh, after the Tower of Babel event, when when the memory of God was was kind of. Uh, the attempt was made to erase it. Right. There, were, there were some groups, some tribes, that continued to hold on to a positive view of God. It's, it's hard to see exactly how this process worked out, but see, Samuel Noah Kramer, who's a great Sumerian scholar, he really believes that Sumer uh, connects back with the name Shem, one of the sons of Noah. Interesting. And it was the line of Shem through which, uh, through which Abraham came. 
So, and it's also interesting that uh, 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 Nippur, which was the, the cult city of Enlil, that is where almost that's where the, the far majority of of Sumerian uh, cuneiform texts have been found. Um, that well, the, the pagans, the, the Sumerians believed that uh, the, the writing, the art of writing, mm-hmm. was came through uh, through the god Enki and through uh, Enmerkar. Once again, back to Enmerkar, Nimrod. Okay, in in the, in the text. Inmarkar and the Lord of Arata, Inmarkar is given credit for, for being the first one to set words into, into writing. Into writing, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I really think that uh, the evidence really suggests that, uh, that uh, writing was probably invented, was probably given to the people of God. And, and that is why, and another thing about uh, Nippur is that as a city-state, it never engaged in uh, wars of conquest. Not once. You you find all the different city states all around it. They all have their time period of when they enjoyed mm-hmm. uh, you know domina- domination right. over some of the others. But Nippur, that that was never the case. Why do you think that was? I think because that was the city most closely associated with this god referred to as Enlil, who is kind of uh, uh, benign. Well, yes, to a certain extent, it was benign. Uh, I don't think, of course, Enlil was not a perfect representation of God. Right. Because God had withdrew, withdrawn from the scenes. I just think that these people uh, had the most, the clearest understanding of the Creator that was possible at that time. Okay. And then it, when, when Abraham was finally called as a nation, as God's own nation, he came, he came out of uh, Ur of the Chaldees, right? Mm-hmm. Right out of, in other words, right out of that area, mm-hmm. that, that same area. But, uh, now, when we get back to uh, these seven, the seven demons, seven individuals, right. there's also a reference to uh, to uh, the seven in connection with Enki. There's an Akkadian incantation that talks about these seven who are the evil ones of Enki. And then when we then when we look to uh, another another form of of uh, what could what is probably perhaps Enki is this god Dagon, who's a northern Mesopotamian, an Amorite god. Dagon appears in the Old Testament, right, mm-hmm. as the god of the Philistines. And Dagon was also associated with uh, human sacrifices, mm. very much so in these northern Mesopotamian cities. But uh, Dagon has a group of seven uh, individuals who are, uh, you know, advanced beings, but they have a very, uh, very they're very terrible, and they're handed into, they, they're given into the control of the underworld deity. What do you make out of all the usages of the number seven? I, yes, that's the, the point I'm trying to show is that I really do believe that the pagan cultures had an understanding of this, uh, what was essentially a prophecy given at the at the very beginning of when the, the nations were handed over right. to the, you know, to the fallen angels, given over to the spiritual authority, mm-hmm. I think they there was this expectation that there would be that there would be a series of seven kings that would that would appear throughout history, and that uh, and that would culminate with one who who would uh, be triumphant, who would essentially. Uh, restored Nimrod's empire, which was the greatest empire that the ancient world ever saw, and that will his his empire will be restored as a global empire at the time of the end in the apocalypse. Hmm. So that's that's why I think that these references to seven throughout the pagan understanding is is really uh, really provocative. Is it is it also Peter a possibility of a hijacking of seven as being a very uh uh, spiritual uh, number. I mean, well, it's spiritual right. either way you go, but I mean, it's also very much, obviously, in the, in the camp of Christians. Yes. So with seven somewhat... Seven, seven appears to be, yes, God's number. You know, yeah. the seven days of mm-hmm. creation. Right. Uh, all these, you know, seven branches of the menorah, that kind of thing. So was that was that also in there as far as, shall we say, a usurpation of that number for... Um... Yes, it, it, it very well could be. Okay. It very well could okay. be part of the process. All right, fair enough. Yes, yes. Now, uh, in my book, this is all kind of new material that I've been trying to study and lay out, and, and it, it's not, I'm not putting it across very well because I haven't written it down yet. That's, that's okay. That's it's new problem. stuff. That's great. Yeah, do it. But, uh, but anyway, uh, 
what I have what I have written down is uh, what I have discovered. It, right now, we've been talking about you know the pagan uh, spirituality prior to say 1700 BC. If we jump ahead another thousand years, okay, to the origins of, of Greek civilization. Uh, we find that uh, you know the Greeks had their own pantheon. They had Zeus, Apollo, Hades, all of these gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, Dionysus was really viewed as a foreign god who mm. came on the scene. Uh, uh, I think that uh, I think the Greeks really had uh, at one point they had a very strong Hebrew influence mm-hmm. in their history. I think that's why there are many ways in which uh, Zeus kind of connects with Jehovah in a certain sense, especially when we get to his the war uh, that took place between uh, the gener- Zeus's generation and the prior generation, which were described as the Titans. Well, is it true that there's a connection between the um, the Hebrew El Adonai and also uh, the Greek uh, Dionysus? Uh, was there a yes, connectivity there? there? Okay. Absolutely, absolutely, there is, there is. All right. uh, but again, Dionysus was understood by the Greeks to be a foreign god who was introduced later after their pantheon had already been established. That's kind of interesting. What we find is yeah. that, for instance, uh, the of, uh, the uh, Apollo, mm-hmm. his his main headquarters was at Delphi, right? The, the oracle at Delphi. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the Greeks, what, what Greek scholars kind of said was that... Uh, at one time, this had been a uh, an oracle for Dionysus. Essentially, th- their their belief was that Apollo and Dionysus were one and the same originally. Hmm. In other words, Apollo, being being like the firstborn son of Zeus, kind of uh, kind of is associated with Dion- uh, Osiris being the firstborn son of of the of the Egyptian earth god Geb. Okay. And and then then again we have Geb being related to Enki of the of the Sumerians by by all the ancient uh, chroniclers like Barossus and Manetho and all these guys. By the way, have you ever done a chart? <laughs> that would be helpful. <laughs> that would be helpful. That, that's for sure. That's for sure. All right. Okay. <laughs> um, but it, no, I, ha- I haven't. You haven't done it. Okay, but it down yet. All righty. it down. But uh, no, returning to. Uh, this uh, the appearance of these seven. We have uh, some interesting references to. It's referred to as uh, the Kabiric mysteries. You know, you had all these different mystery religions. You know, the the Eleusinian mysteries, right? The Bacchic mysteries, which were all related to Dionysus. Mm-hmm. You also have the Kabiric mysteries. Now, these were headquartered on the island of Samothrace in the northern Aegean. This island had the highest mountain in all of that, the whole Aegean Sea. And according to legends, this was, uh, on top of this mountain was where the god Poseidon viewed the Trojan War from. You know, the, the epic, Homer's epic mm-hmm. conquest of Troy. Right. Supposedly the god sat on that mountain and watched it play out. But high places are very important to these pagan cultures, right? Mm-hmm. It's, they've always viewed, you know, like Mount Olympus, Mount Hermon, whatever. This is, it's always viewed as something like a gateway mm-hmm. to the gods. But uh, this island of Samothrace held, was the headquarters of this ancient cult. And supposedly this cult of the, the Kabiric Mysteries was, uh, at, at one of their initiation rites, was supposedly where the father and mother of Alexander the Great met. Alexander the Great's mother was a very high-level initiate of all the Dionysian mysteries, and she was very much a devotee. Um, but the, what's important is the theme behind the Kabiric mysteries. The theme behind it is the sacrifice of of, uh, of a god, of, of the gods actually turning on one of their own and killing him and viewing it as a sacrifice, a sort of a sacrifice on behalf of humanity. And then at the end of the, the rite is culminated with the resurrection of that God. Mm. Again, we have kind of a, uh, a parallel, kind of a mirror opposite of, of the, uh, you know, the, the gospel story, mm-hmm. the passion of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is, what's interesting though, is that according to these Kabiric mysteries, they were, it was... Uh, the, the initiate is associated with one particular god, but he has seven brothers, and he is referred to as the eighth. The one who dies and rises again is referred to as the eighth. 
this ties in again with the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. where you have the seven-headed dragon, the seven kings, uh, the, the eighth is one of the seven. The eighth is the one who comes up out of the abyss. The eighth is the one who dies and rises again. And turning back again to, to Revelation 13, when it says that one of the heads of the beast had a fatal wound, uh, and then the fatal wound was healed. Again, it's talking about resurrection. So the Kabiric mysteries are, again, another point where I think the, this understanding of the Kabiric seven, uh, and the eighth, again, is, is one of his names is Eshman, which means the eighth. One of his na- and he was he was worshipped by the Phoenicians. And another name is uh, Asclepius, which is how he was worshipped by the Greeks. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's just interesting how all these references to seven and to an eighth all seem to turn up in all the uh, pagan uh, all the pagan myths and, uh, and mystery religions. Well, uh, what's your take on why that happens? Again, that's I, I think that. Uh, I think that the pagan world, especially at its highest levels, you know, the elite class of, of where they were getting... Uh, I, I really have a supernatural view of the world, and I really think that uh, what we're involved in is a, uh, a, a major cosmic conflict between good and evil, and we have spiritual advanced beings on either side. And I think at the highest levels of human government, we have a control of of, uh, you know, these, these evil spiritual beings controlling the human race through, through a chosen few. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the mystery religions, this connection between the fallen angels and human beings was very close. And I think that's why some of these hidden mystery religions at their core uh, put forth this understanding of a dying and rising God who would come, who human beings would identify with personally, just like within Christianity, uh, you know, the individual Christian identifies with Jesus Christ as their key to salvation. I don't know know where you want to go from here, but I mean, um, so you see what's happening uh, today. Um, So what's your call on as far as uh, what's going to happen and and, and what we're looking at today that might lay the foundation for that? Well, uh, my long-term or short-term prophetic expectation, I guess. Okay. Uh, Well, I I really think that uh, as far as the Giza discovery... Uh, yeah, I named it. The, I named my series the Giza Discovery right. uh, for a purpose because I really believe that uh, there's something will be found in Giza. I believe that there is a secret chamber in perhaps in the Great Pyramid itself, and I believe that uh, that this uh, that this corpse of this of this figure that uh, is about five thousand years old, I believe it will be found. Uh, now, there's an interesting uh, message that Jesus gave. Uh, within the Olivet Discourse, talking about how uh, of what to expect and what to be careful of. Okay. And then he goes into this uh, section after he after he talks about the abomination of desolation, then he, and then talking about the uh, great tribulation. Then he then he gives a message about false messiahs. Okay. He says, "Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him." For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, that's that last verse, Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, that has hit me very hard. Uh... Uh, it was a listener to to PID to one of my appearances on PID. Radio, okay, I think right. back in January or February that alerted me to this fact. Uh, now let's just uh, dissect this this warning that Jesus gives uh, section by section. Uh, sure, he's giving he's giving warnings about who not to ex- accept, right? Who not to accept as the Messiah. First, he says, uh, if they say he's out in the wilderness, don't go. Or if they say, behold, he's in the inner room, don't go. And then he says, uh, then he says, don't believe that because when I come, everybody will see me, right? All right. And then he ends by saying, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, this translating uh, vultures, uh, the English translation of the Greek as vultures is wrong. The Greek does not say vultures. The Greek says eagles. An eagle 
denotes uh, nobility, military strength, right. leadership, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Okay? When he says uh, wherever the corpse is, there the eagles will gather, I really view the eagles as perhaps being a reference to the ten kings. When we look at Revelation 17, it talks about when the Antichrist arises, there will be ten kings, mm -hmm. ten, ten you know, powerful leaders of the world who will give all their power into the hands of the Antichrist. Agreed. So, so I see this reference to the corpse as a reference to the Antichrist and the reference to the eagles as a reference to the, the ten kings who will gather around the Antichrist. Hmm. And uh, right now, the Antichrist, his soul is in hell. I believe his, his body is probably <clears throat> held somewhere, uh, somewhere in Giza or in that area, in that vicinity. But uh, in the book of Revelation, it mentions about how when the abyss will be opened. I don't think the soul can be reunited with the body until the abyss is opened. Um, and that happens uh, uh, right after the, the beginning of the day of the Lord in the book of Revelation. Uh, but you think the key is in Giza? I do. I okay. do, I think. Okay. And it's interesting when you look at uh, the other side, the other side of, uh, you know, Aleister Crowley had a very deep fascination with Egypt. Uh, another guy who did was uh, G.I. Gurdjieff. Are you familiar with that guy? No, not at all. Gurdjieff, he's a, he was a Russian mystic, very famous uh, in Europe. He has his own school of, you know, where his teachings are, yeah. mm -hmm. are promoted. Uh, you know, Helena Blavatsky was another one. Okay, yeah, uh, Even yeah. going back to the Renaissance where we had this kind of, uh, it was like an occult, uh, it was like an occult renaissance, really. Mm -hmm. All this, like the hermetic literature appeared, mm -hmm. and then there was all this fascination with the Kabbalah, and then it, you know, it, it, it turned into uh, uh, a lot of <laughs> very dangerous stuff when you were looking at, like, John Dee, who tried to, mm -hmm. you know, evoke angels and, and that kind of thing. But uh, Giordano Bruno was another guy. He, he was burned at the stake. He was another disseminator of this. And you had, you know, guys like Nostradamus. Uh, but central to this whole idea is is their understanding of Egypt as as the home of you know the true religion mm. for them, and uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza is really the uh, the the global headquarters or focal point of this whole new age, new occult, new pagan movement. That's it. The the, the Great Pyramid of Giza is like the Rome or the Jerusalem or the Mecca to this. Uh, mm -hmm to this new wave of, of spirituality. Uh, in the time we've got left, is there an event that they are waiting for down there? It's, it's hard to say what they are waiting for. Uh, from, the, from the people that, I've, that I keep in touch with, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, there's, there's an idea that uh, whatever is there has already been found, and they're waiting for the time to, to reveal it. Uh, uh, you know, are you familiar with Edgar Casey, the Sleeping Prophet? Absolutely. His, yes, his his predictions that the Hall of Records would be found in 1998. Well, I, I think he was, you know, he was channeling spirit entities who knew that something was located there. I think, uh, I think that they, you know, gave him this idea and they were able to manipulate events. Uh, what we, what people don't realize is that uh, Zahi Hawass, who's the main. Uh, uh, Egyptian guy in charge of all the antiquities. He was he's closely affiliated with uh, the Edgar Casey Foundation. He was put through graduate school by the Edgar <laughs> Casey Foundation. So he was. They were in a position to manipulate things, sure. so that whatever was found was found at that time. Um, so I think it's it's already happened. They know what's there. It's just a matter of what is the proper time. Um, you gave us the fast course. I know that. Uh, tell people also uh, where they might listen to. Um some of your audio that's presently out there. Now, PID has archived, what, uh, three or more shows with you? Yeah, yeah, PID has a lot of my stuff. Uh, I also go on with uh, uh, Gloria Taylor Edwards. She has a, a little, she works out of a AM station out of Richmond, Virginia, but I don't think those are archived. Okay. Uh, that's, that's about it for now. I did, I did some shows on Night Search uh, a number of years ago, but uh, right now, the last few months, I've been really busy coaching Little League Baseball. And a boy, I love that. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> yeah, I got it. My son just turned eight, so we're in the middle of. Uh, is he, is he, we're near the end of a of a of a real fun season. Is he on T-ball or are they pitching now? No, it, it's a coach pitch. Ah, oh, okay. I'm a pitcher. Oh. <laughs> so that's, I, I'm just trying to get back into uh, you know. Pre 
promoting my stuff and, and getting into writing and researching, which is why it, it, it wasn't the smoothest interview for me. It, it's hard for me to get back in the groove and, and you know, give my presentation, but you know, I appreciate your patience. No, you, no problem there, plus I know you were trying to give us as much as you could. It was kind of a survey course in a sense, yeah. and uh, yeah, and everybody understands that that's fine. Then they, they know where to go looking for you. You can come back on. Yeah. We love it. Yeah. Uh, they, well, I, didn't, I didn't even get a chance to, to go into how uh, this all touched on the Necronomicon. That's a whole oh, story. It's, it's very, very interesting. And but uh, yeah, it's for for a new audience. Uh, you know, you got to lay the groundwork first before you get into yeah. some of the more provocative and sensational uh, specifics. And we agreed on that. And I thank you for doing that. Um, yeah. I also will pin you down if you feel so led, and you're certainly welcome here. Uh, come on back, and let's do that. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll plan on it, but uh, I gotta, I gotta get all my my notes uh, in order, and, and perhaps I should write an article on it too, because it flows much better if I have it all in my head. No uh, problem. Thanks for the invitation. Well, listen, before you go, give us the website and what can be found there. The website redmoonrising.com, and uh, people can. Uh, I have a number of articles. Uh, people can access. People can read my book online for free, or they can download it as a PDF, as okay. well as a couple of other okay. of my more important articles. Or they can. Uh, my book's also available at Amazon.com. So, but uh, that's it. I, I work for a living. I'm a carpenter. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a normal guy. I have a normal life with the. Uh, with you know. We like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Honest to goodness, we do. <laughs> That's all right. Then uh, you're okay with us. That's you know. I mean, in the way that means that nobody else has you uh, by the bridle. You know that's what I mean? That's true. That's true. I think that that, that helps. Definitely. All right, brother. Thanks so much for for having a, for a good interview. All right, listen. No problem. We'll see you again if you're willing. We are too. And God bless you. And get those allergies back in shape. Oh yeah. Thanks a lot. We'll see you. Bye bye. Bye bye.